We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to built environment professionals about what can be learned from unbuilt work and if it's possible to learn from designs that don't get tested in bricks and mortar. Our guest in this episode is Peter Edwards from Archipelago Architects based in Queensland. Peter is a registered architect and director of Archipelago Architects, a practice that works across all scales from city making through to small multi-residential projects. Philip shares his thoughts on the unrealised potential of unbuilt projects, how the new city of Brisbane interfaces with country and its Indigenous culture, and how people design differently with regards to reformed legislation, such as liquor licence changes or destroyed buildings, such as Notre Dame, as they're forced to look at existing conditions differently. I'll now hand over to Bridie O'Toole, who is an Imagine representative based in Queensland. Let's jump in. I wish to start this podcast by acknowledging the traditional owners across Australia as the original custodians of our land and waters, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I, Bridie O'Toole, am here today speaking on Yagara and Tourable Country to Archipelago founder and director Peter Edwards. Peter is speaking to us today from Yagara and Tourable Land at the Archipelago office in the Brisbane CBD. Is that right, Peter? That is right. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Peter. We'll begin with a few questions about you. Peter, you've worked in the industry for 30 years now. You're an architect and you work heavily in the field of urban design. Tell me, what kind of architect do you consider yourself to be? We at Archipelago distinguish ourselves in the architecture community by starting all of our projects from the position of being city makers. So for us, we don't uh, distinguish between the design tasks of designing a city or a, a master plan or a piece of urban design work and the design tasks of designing a building or the design tasks of designing a decent chair. It's all design and it's all a design process. Through the career path that I've taken in the industry, it's led me to be concerned increasingly higher up the scales because it's only by getting the macro right that we're able to deliver a meaningful micro, in my humble opinion. And many times we're finding ourselves as architects dealing with buildings where we're a little bit confounded about the kind of urban circumstance that the building finds itself in and we're scratching our heads about, well, why is this street so inhumanely delivered? Why is the orientation of this block incorrect when it could have been corrected? You know, why is the circumstance of the building ignorant of a wonderful contextual asset that might be nearby? So there's lots of things around the way that we come to a building that are informed by the position of the building within the city. And that's where we really focus our efforts as a practice. Peter, you talk about this idea of the micro scale, moving into this idea of the macro scale. So how did you transition from designing buildings to doing other forms of design work, such as urban design? Well, it's kind of ironic. I started university originally to become an industrial designer. I was fascinated by the design of things and remain fascinated by the design of things. I um, you know, dabble in the arts and I'm infatuated with building of things. I guess uh, many architects are polymaths in the closet and very much concerned with lots of things, but it's really the making of things that kind of drives my interest. And I think my original attraction to architecture was very much that, you know, being exposed to architecture and landscape architecture and industrial design and other design disciplines in a uh, multi-stranded first year of an undergraduate degree at what would become QUT. I was interested in learning more about the way that buildings went together and discovered a kind of natural skill set that set me up to do that work well. And so I pursued it. And certainly um, with no regrets, I I think for many architects, it's a profound um, career path where the work that you're doing every day has real effect on the lives and the shape of our lives um, for lots of people in society. 
So it's a kind of noble pursuit. And certainly if you can keep your focus on that, you're destined to enjoy yourself for the rest of your career. How did you become what you call a city maker? I've always worked in, for the first part of my career, I worked for 10 years for a company called Divine Irby Maslin, which was um, a big multidisciplinary company. So I'm sitting alongside landscape architects and planners and interior designers and, and coming back to this idea that it's all design. All of this making of things, be they chairs, be they churches, be they towns, they're all, it's all a design problem. And I had an interesting experience very, very recently, actually, where I, I was um, passing one of my architects and on the screen was this beautiful diagram. And we'd been having conversations in the office about this important place that we're considering in one of our master plans that we're working on at the moment, which is a place, you know, effectively a kind of a town square, effectively a heart for this new community to kind of gather around. And we had been looking at precedents to help us understand those opportunities and I walked past this diagram and I was completely enraptured by this diagram on the screen of my architects, which was this beautiful kind of curvaceous diagram with, with ligatures reaching out. And I stopped to compliment him on that. I said, Nick, that's a really beautiful thing that you're working on there. I could really see how the people can move through that space and, and the community could be drawn to gather around it. And without even batting an eyelid, he informed me that it was actually a one is to two detail of a you know weatherproofing sill for the bottom of a door. <laughs> was a, one is to do detail of one of the most innocuous things that you might actually be forced to kind of detail when you're putting a building together. You know, so of course we had a laugh and it's lovely, but I actually have a copy of that detail up on my wall now because it's just kind of a reminder that we have a promise to ourselves at Archipelago of, of building cities and buildings and things. So it, it's a kind of reminder for ourselves that we want to always have a hand in all of those scales. And whilst we're a practice that's, you know, a lot of our reputation in, in the industry in, in Queensland is really around the urban design work that we do. We're also a practice that produces buildings and we're busily producing quite a lot of them at the moment. Which is fantastic. And what's great about the architects that have chosen to come and join us is that, you know, they take great delight in the diversity of our work in the smorgasbord that they get to kind of feast upon every day, the conversations that they get to join. It keeps you sharp, invigorated and interested in the profession of your choice. And I think that that's an important thing for us always to be focused on. We have works that range from, you know, one of our practice managers, Mark Hasem, when we were in partnership with Arkfield and ARM, we were completing the Athletes Village on the Gold Coast. Mark wasn't happy with a particular detail in the 18 foyers that we were delivering and, you know, where the builder was proposing to uh, apply some plywood to the wall as a way of enhancing the ground floor experience. Mark wasn't happy with that, so he, he took it upon himself to redeploy the budget that had been allocated for that, which was reasonably substantial in the scheme of things, and took it upon himself to create a 72-panel mural of the, um, the floral transect of the Lamington National Park through the Gold Coast transect to the beaches, and an experiment in colour that explored the variations of colour in the diurnal of a given day. And that artwork was broken up into a series of quadratures and was installed in all of the foyers in time for the uh, the athletes to enjoy during their stay at the Commonwealth Games Village in 2018. And it was a fantastic kind of contribution, but it was really, you know, an example about the way, you know, some of the things that we have, you can jump onto a website and, and order up an archipelago table. And at the same time, we're busily shaping cities at the largest of scales. We're currently working with the Moreton Bay Regional Council to turn them into Moreton Bay City Council. We are literally creating a city and uh, are responsible for the, the polycentric vision for that city moving forward. So it is wonderful to move through the scales. It is all design and it is all a design process that really is a kind of ideas-led strategic design process, whether it be shaping a city or whether it be designing a table. And, and I think that's what uh, we take great delight in focusing on as a practice. I think it's only when we come together and look at both the micro and the macro scale in an interdisciplinary way that we can get the best build outcomes, both for city and for place. So yes, I think it is a great ethos. So let's move to the question that brought us here today. What can be learned from projects that don't get built and from projects that we hoped never got built? It's kind of like a really kind of gorgeous question to ask an architect and, and you need to clear out the afternoon and open the three bottles of red and sit back and enjoy a, a long conversation as the um, as the architect of choice unloads 
one of the one of the problems and one of the delights of being an architect or being a design person is that design is a real act of altruistic optimism especially for architects you know we're not creating things for ourselves to enjoy we're creating things very much you know with a lot of our attention on the legacy benefits of our work in terms of how it makes a contribution to society so we're always making things for others we're always relying on spending the money of others and with that goes um, a kind of constant negotiation around negotiated compromise with respect to how that money is spent and what the outcome is and a balance between our design aspirations and what's possible to kind of make real. I think that there are some things that we could look at and suggest, well, would our city have been better off if we hadn't built a particular thing? And what do we wish we could have stuck with? And I do have some experiences, which I do kind of remind myself of every now and again. And one of those was uh, there was a particularly rosy time for the design community in the 90s um, and early noughties where we had a very strong design ethos that received a lot of support from the then state government architect Michael Kenniger who had organised a series of design competitions that the state was investing themselves in and of those three projects one of them was a stadium one of them was a library and one of them was a new gallery of modern art and having participated in two of those um, in my former life in a role with a large multidisciplinary design practice. We were working with Massimiliano Fuxus. Massimiliano's Fuxus is a, a architect, if you like, from Italy, who joined forces with the local practice where I was working. And the proposition was to put forward a development of this design strategy as part of that competition process. And whilst the proposal I would accept is not necessarily my bag architecturally, Massimiliano's a titanium potato would have provided for the city a kind of iconic piece of architecture. And I know that there's a lot of debate around the word icon and whether that's a good thing or not, but let's rephrase it and, and refer to it as a kind of compelling and memorable piece of architecture. We would have delivered at the Gallery of Modern Art a piece of architecture that people would be getting on the aeroplanes and traveling from the other side of the world to visit. And there's a kind of um, lament about the leadership in the delivery of our opportunities around delivering the kind of cultural chess pieces within our city and whether or not we're actually delivering those in the best possible way. And there's a kind of absence of bravery or a, an absence of, of, of sophisticated understanding about the potential of those things in Queensland where we kind of talk ourselves out of doing really great things and talk ourselves into kind of compromises that looking back were really a result of fairly short-term kind of political expediencies rather than listening to the experts who have dedicated their lives to building a great city, listening to those experts who really care about design and care about the outcomes for Queensland. And Doug Hall, who was running the Queensland Gallery of Art, who recommended Massimiliano Fuxus's scheme as the first place uh, winner of that competition, his recommendation was not picked up and we missed out on a really great piece of architecture through really a kind of process of you know, ham-fisted project delivery from the armatures of government. And I think that's a disappointment that we've got to try and provide a way to empower our leaders to value design and put in place proper champions for good design outcomes. Otherwise, we just don't get those good design outcomes. Those things just don't get built. And the path to today at any one time in the history of many cities around the world is littered with missed opportunities. And it's only in the extraordinary occasion that a Sydney Opera House gets built because of the kind of leadership and legacy, you know, that you really need and a Saarinen to kind of arrive on the scene and pull out the discarded scheme from the waste pile and put it back on the table and bang the table and demand for a great thing to be made. And then the commitment of a series of kind of a governments to remain, you know, steadfast to the task of delivering something truly remarkable. Otherwise, truly remarkable things just don't happen. That's why I think the legacy of architecture in Queensland is most of the great architecture I think that happens that the world really focuses on in Queensland is really around our residential scaled architecture and our body of work around Queensland architects delivering houses is truly a great body of work with some really, you know, some internationally significant work happens in that space. 
and we have produced generations of great residential architects because at that scale and, and the way that those buildings are procured, design can champion the process and, you know, the will of the architect can be supported and those visions can be built and completed much more easily than, say, a gallery of modern art or a um, or a state library or what have you. So I think, you know, there's there's some work we need to do to kind of empower our leaders to give us the opportunity to produce, you know, the city of our dreams, to produce the great architecture that we're very confident can be produced from the profession locally. And it really is this collaboration between the armatures of government and the development industry to kind of allow those good things to happen. So, yes, there was an example there with um, Fuchs's Gallery of Modern Art Scheme and Archipelago has had its opportunities as well where we were commissioned to do an alternative master plan for the priority development area at North Shore at Hamilton and it was a really terrific work in collaboration with Damien Thompson at LAT27 at the time and I mean it was a, a terrific master plan that really wrestled with the pragmatics very well and and tried to create that body of evidence to give it you know a reason to live and and survive all of the slings and arrows of um, the bureaucracies at, at state government. And that included demonstrating that, you know, we could release a master plan that meant that everyone who lived in this precinct either looked over water or looked over parkland and, you know, demonstrated a much more diverse and rich opportunity around urban form. And when it was passed sideways to the auditors, the good folk at Jones Lang LaSalle suggested that we might have added $125 million to the underlying land value. So we thought that was going to get supported and find its way through, but it went by the wayside and you know, one might look with curiosity at the draft master plan that's being supported now and delivered and be looking for the design vision in that plan to try and see where the um, design vision might exist and potentially be disappointed. So those frustrations exist, but I don't think any architect needs to be despondent about whether or not your visions or whether or not your designs are built. The, The quality of your work is your work and the quality of your work needs to be exemplary as you can possibly make it in the circumstances. And then you can be proud of your work. And every now and again, when one of your uh, efforts finds its way to, into bricks and mortar or concrete, glass and steel, as the case may be, the, you'll um, have a deep sense of satisfaction. But I don't think there's much value in becoming despondent about the ones that fall by the wayside, because I think that's a, a kind of common occurrence in many design professions throughout the world. You talk about this notion of iconic architecture and the hesitance that people experience and feel towards it. Do you think that hesitance is typical and common or more common in Australia? Do you think there is a recurring theme as to why iconic architecture isn't realised? Is it just leadership and government or do you think there is a community contributing factor at the core? Yeah, look, it's kind of an interesting issue, isn't it? You know, I try very hard never to use the word iconic because it's a kind of a, a word with a lot of baggage. I think when we're looking at the great cities of the world and, you know, we, we get on the aeroplanes and we travel to the other side of the world to visit cities that are made famous for things that you might be scratching your head a little bit about why on earth we don't build those things for ourselves back in our young cities in Australia. And we are building our cities very quickly and there's a, a simple notion that, I mean, when you look at Brisbane, if you were standing on the Queen Street Mall and looking around, 80% of everything that you're looking at didn't exist 40 years ago. So we are actually building a new city. And whilst it kind of sort of creeps up on us a little bit, it's a process that by comparison to many cities of the world, we're building our city very quickly. And when you build a new city, it should, by virtue of the fact you have all of the cities in all of the world to learn from, it should be the best city in the world. And if it's not, then we really need to kind of take some pause and ask some deep questions about the way that we are building our city. Um, And that goes to things like making sure we have a, you know, the tools of governance that we're deploying across our city. Our city plan needs to be a kind of planning machinery that encourages good design outcomes. And the current city plan does not. It actually works actively against good design outcomes. So I think there's, you know, opportunities for us to be focused on good design outcomes that are quality design outcomes. And when you look at cities like Singapore, who have a very vertically integrated structure around design leadership in that city, that they are able to do good things very, very well and support visions for outcomes for the city that uh, receive the advocacy of their government and get delivered. And we can look with envy with the outcomes that they're able to achieve. So there are some lessons there, but I do think that there's a kind of connection to culture a little bit, and it might 
ultimately go back to our design education around what our cultural education might be with respect to design. Is it, is it a thing that we have many conversations about through our lives? Possibly not. Is, is it a thing that concerns anyone else but architects? <laughs> Possibly not. And I think, I think that's a little bit of a shame because whilst you know, the concern of design doesn't capture page one of the local rag at any one time, design is, an, is nonetheless the thing that we come back from those trips abroad with all of our stories of wonderment at the great places that we're able to visit. And many of those experiences are because of the design of those places and the quality of the way that those places are executed in terms of their design. And so I think it's an important thing to continue to be focused on it. And it's an important thing to continue a conversation about but we really need to rebuild our architecture of governance and advocacy for design in, in this city because it's been significantly unpacked over the last 10 years. Of course, when we think of Sydney and we think of Australia, we think of the Sydney Opera House. But what else is there, I suppose? So whilst the idea of iconic architecture, like you said, is a weighted term to throw around, I do agree with what you're saying. Internationally, when we think about our places, we think about our iconic buildings. Well, I think a lot of the places in the world that I really enjoy, you know, architecture is almost a humble accident. I like that, a humble accident. And um, it's not really a thing where they've sought to kind of brand their place and compete on the international market for city making by design differentiating. It's none of that stuff. It's just out of, you know, the fine grain of all of the compounding elements that go to make a place, you know, the availability of materials, the centuries of legacy of craftsmanship in terms of the way that things are built, which have grown out of a connection to place in terms of, you know, the way materials are sourced, the tools that are available, the climate and and response to cultural issues. You know, Japan's a very good example. There's many beautiful rural towns in Japan that are filled with a buildings that I just deeply love that are made with such care and such integrity in terms of the generations of detailing that have been handed down, the knowledge that is held sacred about the way that timber is used, the way that a building sits on the ground, cognizant of the spaces that it's making around it, a dialogue between the things that man makes and the things that nature has made and a kind of love affair between both of those things that's evident in the architecture and spaces. And none of that's done with any bravado. It's just all done with such kind of admirable humility, but such a sophistication that those are the things that are that can be deeply admired about, you know, a, a place like rural Japan. But And I've seen those moments in Australia and many of us, uh, you know, for a long time that there was a growing vernacular that was deeply loved and interpreted and reinterpreted and continues to be so by many architects in Queensland around the reinterpreted coastal beach shack. And that vernacular was about a building that could open up, that had a dialogue with its landscape, that had a sort of honesty around its tectonic a sort of humbleness about the materials that were used and the way that those materials came together to create a kind of fabric response that was truly Queensland that we could be really proud of, that was clever and witty about design without any of the baggage of having to pretend to be iconic, but nonetheless special and very lovable (laughs) despite all of that humility that came with that way of building. And, you know, I think you can pop up the road and look at John Mainwaring's library at the University of Sunshine Coast and see how that humility can be writ large in scale and point to a kind of architecture that we really could have built our cities around, which, you know, led led us to some important things. And, you know, I'm just curious about whether that conversation's lost a little bit of energy and we're starting to become infatuated with other things that are a little bit more stylistically generated rather than coming from that real generations of of honest interpretation of a vernacular that was lying just under the surface of a very young country like Australia. In your opinion, Peter, what are some examples of projects that you'd hoped never got built? Well, anyone who's listened to me stand on the soapbox and rabbit on about things like troll habitat will know that I'm not a very big fan of freeways. So when, when I say troll habitat, I'm referring to this idea that was handed to me by some very thoughtful people at the University of Queensland who had the benefit of spending time with and being taught by 
and it was less about the lessons that were directed in the studio and in the lectures, but more about spending time and talking about things that were important about cities and where our values lay. And there's a simple idea about when we make an over-the-top, we make an underneath, and that's where the trolls live. We all understand the old myth of the three billy goats gruff. And one of the reasons that we tell our children those fables is that we want them to be afraid of the kinds of places underneath things because we don't want our kids to stroll down the alleyway and find themselves in the big drain pipe or underneath the bridge because bad things can happen there. That's where our trolls live. And when I was coming through uni, I one of my final projects was actually on the sorts of spaces that were underneath the Riverside Expressway that runs beside the city. And I found that space particularly interesting because it was a, such a non-space. And coincidentally, whilst doing that work, a young chap was killed under there. And, you know, there was a, a local gang whose process of initiating into this gang was to stand behind one of the fat columns holding up the freeway and listen for the cyclist approaching and step out, coat hang of them off the bike and beat them up. And in a particularly aggressive initiation and an enthusiastic beating, a poor chap was kicked unconscious into the high tide of the Brisbane River and drowned and died. And there was such a kerfuffle in the press, these terrible gangs, these awful people, something simply must be done. But we completely missed the point. The point was we created a piece of the city that kills people. And that happened for me in the early 90s, but I when I was able to write about that, when Archipelago was, was being formed, I was able to write a kind of piece around troll habitat for the Planning Institute of Australia. And, and I was able to show a slide when the Urban Design Alliance was formed way back in the late 1999. I was able to show a slide that I took on site of a circumstance underneath the freeway. And when I was writing that piece in, uh, I think it was 2011, I was able to show those two slides and they were indecipherably different. So in the 40 years since we built that piece of infrastructure, which basically robbed the city of one of its premier riverfronts, in the 40 years since its construction, we were able to do absolutely nothing about the condition of the space under that freeway. And it's really an indictment on that part of the city. And, and comically now, um, when we're delivering the Queen's Wharf project, which I think is um, a pretty disappointing thing to happen to the city, frankly, you know, I, I struggle to accept that the finest thing we can create for our society is, uh, you know, this enormous kind of casino, a sort of edifice of gambling simply is the absolute antithesis of the sorts of investments we should be making for our society. You know, they serve such a kind of privileged and or underprivileged part of our society, as the case may be. Those kinds of facilities mean very little for the everyday person. And to actually have delivered that artifact and have knocked down, you know, the very fine Neville Bonner buildings, national award-winning examples of architecture delivered by Donovan Hill. Very, very good buildings that were only a third of the way through their economic life. I mean, it was really a kind of very dire moment for, um, you know, the leadership of the state at the time. And that deal was done, you know, perversely and quickly and uh, without very much consultation. And certainly, whilst the Institute of Architects made our submissions on behalf of the community of architects, we're simply just not a powerful enough voice to have tipped the scales. And for that project to have happened, and still we have not dealt fundamentally, whilst we've gone down and provided treatments to the troll habitat, we haven't dealt fundamentally with the opportunity of actually removing that problem from the city. And it'll really remain to be seen about how successful they are in the long term. And I hope very much that they are successful, but I think that the fundamental opportunity was missed. And it wasn't that, you know, clever architects didn't go and see some ministers and say, you really should do something different because I can assure you, at least this architect did. And there were some bigger ideas about dealing with the Riverside Expressway with money that was on the table that um, our leaders just simply did not find the will to take advantage of. So I think that if we're asking ourselves, you know, what would I rather have done differently, I'd put to anyone listening right now in 2022, that we've just come through a period of time, which is only about 15 years, where we've spent 15, I'll include um, Kingston Smith Drive in that number, we've spent $15 billion on private car infrastructure in the city of Brisbane. 
if we all jumped in the communal time machine, which would be pretty nifty, and went back to the beginning of that process, perhaps when Clem 7 was being contemplated and the alternate scheme for Clem 7 was a lazy figure eight light rail that would connect Balimba to the University of Queensland through all of the urban core of the city. You know, if we went back and kind of reconsidered all of those things and you had $15 billion to spend on the city and you said, let's make the city of our dreams, I think that we would have spent it differently and we would make very different decisions about how we would spend that money. And someone might on the sidelines of that conversation might say, well, we didn't know about things then and, you know, we're much more mature and, and sensible architects, right? you know, right now we would do things differently. But I can assure you that we are right now proposing to spend money in equally insane ways for the delivery of important infrastructure that will dramatically affect the city where we're just simply not thinking cleverly enough about the design opportunities that those infrastructure investments mean for the shape of our city. And that's uh, an important thing to be vigilant about. And I really do think that the uh, the various professions could, whose positions have been significantly diminished in the scheme of things could be banding together to provide a much stronger voice to kind of direct traffic around how those infrastructure expenditures occur so that we can actually take a few more positive steps towards the city of our dreams. What are some upcoming projects that you think that we need to keep a close eye on? Oh, definitely the infrastructure around the 2032 Olympics is of paramount concern right now. And the design community needs to have a much louder voice to give our leaders permission to do better things with that coming infrastructure to make a positive contribution to our city moving forward. I mean, an Olympics is a once in a city's lifetime moment. I mean, a lot of people stand up and say it's once in a lifetime moment, the Olympics. It's not. It's not. It's once in a city's lifetime. This never comes again to Brisbane. And if the last time we had a once in a city's lifetime moment, it was Expo 88, or you could argue G20, but I suggest it was Expo 88, keeping my positive hat on. And, and Expo 88 will never come again to Brisbane. And the last time we had one of those, we, Expo 88 begat South Bank, perhaps one of the most significant urban spaces of any city anywhere in the world. It's a terrific artifact to have. We're heading towards a future. In 2040, the population of the city doubles. And you know, if we're looking out the window and saying, well, everything I see times two, where is the vision or the master plan that spatially maps how we're going to make room for those things as the city moves forward. And I can assure you that master plan simply does not exist. And that is a real deficit in the governance of both state and local council. I think local council does significantly much better work, I think, in being clearer about the vision for um, our planning moving forward, but it simply is not deep enough in terms of its design thinking or its effect. You know, it still is kind of a collection of projects rather than a comprehensive master plan that's driven by a vision and a set of principled values. And I think that it's really um, up to us to kind of, and when I say us, I mean the greater design community, to have the voice to ask for more thought around the Olympics to get a better result. And, and we have been advocating since September 2018 for a significant, I guess, design-led approach to the Olympic moment. And we're still advocating for that. And that will be, you know, that's an idea that, you know, if the proposition is at the moment that we're really going to knock down the stadium at Woolloongabba, we're going to knock down the Gabba and rebuild it for a cost of about $1.8 billion for an extra 8,000 seats. I mean, is that really the best idea for the city? Is it the best idea for the city? Is a question, right? Are we really proposing to build Brisbane Live over the five major domestic railway lines, you know, at a similar cost, you know, $1.7 or $1.8 billion for a building that should really only cost $800 million? Is that, are we really going to, to have an opportunity cost of about a billion dollars by just simply the way that we've chosen the site for that building? Is that really the best thing for us to be doing? Is that the best we've got? You know, and I think there's lots of things about delivering an athlete's village at Hamilton North Shore. Athlete's villages are ostensibly things that are perfect for uh, build-to-rent projects and key worker, key worker housing. And if we are truly going to move from an economy based on extraction to an economy based on knowledge, which is one of the state's fundamentals, how are we using that moment to kind of contribute to our knowledge economy? And I'd suggest that there's probably a way to be more thoughtful about where we put 
that piece of infrastructure as well so that we're actually locating key workers in an urban context with a high quality lifestyle and amenity connected to universities and hospitals and our, our knowledge infrastructure. And there's plenty of other alternatives if we were able to pause and be more thoughtful about where, in fact, we locate that infrastructure. So as opposed to a, a kind of comprehensive once in a city's lifetime vision for what we might become, which is made important and pertinent by the coming arrival of an Olympic event to Brisbane, and let's think about the lineage of that, you know, that it's, it's Tokyo, Paris, Los Angeles, you know, we're in very fine company and we need to really step up the game to be able to kind of deliver a city that can possibly be looked at and taken seriously in, in that global context. And we have the opportunity to do that. In fact, the strategy that we've developed, we believe we can deliver twice the legacy and save save the state a couple of billion dollars in the process. So we're hoping very much that there's a gap made in the process and that's a project to really watch to make sure that we're actually delivering that in a way that helps us provide a gross value add to the city, not merely polishing what we would have anyway. Let's make sure that the Olympics provides a gross value add and sets the city up for success for the coming generations because that's the responsibility of this once-in-a-lifetime moment, this particular round of investment. And everyone might bang the table and, and demand that we spend our $5 billion in a very clever way, if that is indeed the budget for our Olympics. We need to also remember that we've um, just over the last little while, happily let go of $14 billion for private car infrastructure without batting an eyelid. So we do need to you know, prioritise what we want from that Olympic moment and make sure that we're empowering our leadership to do good things for us. I agree. I think it's about empowering and encouraging as well. I think you're right that the only way that we can assure an amazing built outcome for the 2032 Olympics is with a considered master plan for Brisbane that we all curate and contribute to. In your 2013 Brisbane TEDx talk, One City, you spoke about this idea of Brisbane being built as a new city. Do you still consider Brisbane to be a new city? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, we're a very young city. I mean, I, I will recount a tale without naming names, but a very clever Indigenous thought leader who happened to be on a plane overhearing a conversation of a couple of businessmen behind her who were recounting that one of them was a fourth generation Australian and the, the other colleague offered up the comment that, well, you can't get more Australian than that. And she couldn't help but just lean over the seat and say, well, I'm a 5,000 generation Australian. So I, you know, I think you've got, I think she had a completely legitimate claim to kind of point out the flaw in the maths there. I think that we need to understand that Brisbane is a young city that's occupying an old country. And there's a, a very unpleasant history that we as a nation are still trying to find the courage to reconcile. And we still are very clumsy in having conversations about how our city sits on country. And we frankly have quite an immature process uh, as a society in terms of delivering the um, artifacts of the thing that we make as we come together, which is our city, making the artifacts of our existence that are, sit comfortably on country. We're still in a process of kind of reconciling that. And I don't think we can satisfactorily reconcile that until we reconcile some of the bigger issues of the fault of history. So in that context and conscious of that, Brisbane is a very young city, so if we jumped in the time machine and went back a couple hundred years, the modern Brisbane was a curious inconvenience to the um, well-established communities of the terrible people who uh, occupied the place where our city now stands. And a couple hundred years is, is, is nothing. When you visit the cities of, of the Middle East or of uh, Japan or of many countries in Europe and you're staying in a house and someone points out to you that it's 500 years old, I mean, that's really kind of remarkable that you're sitting inside a building that's been around for that length of time, you know, twice the length of the modern history of Australia. So I think most of the cities in Australia are young cities. Most of those cities are still growing. I think that we've for a long time had in Queensland a very high level of growth and we continue to have a high level of growth. And all the time is the promise at any one point about this notion of when we make a new city, we can make this city the best in the world. That's the potential that exists at any one moment in the growth of a young city. And I think that that potential is something that we really do need to start to engage in, um, that you can sit back and you can kind of just accept this city that gets handed to you as the 
as the meanest possible outcome from the ravages of political expediency, or you can actually engage and take advantage of the potential of, of the idea of building a new city. And we can really start to kind of create those things that we uh, spend a lot of time traveling to the other side of the world to see. And that becomes um, a kind of fantastic adventure. The notion of building the city of your dreams, which we founded our practice around, is really a, a terrific adventure to be on and to be constantly engaged in that and be active. I mean, we create ideas, we express them in designs and drawings, and then we put them in packages and run up the road and pop them on the table of important uh, people who are responsible for building our city and suggest that they really should look at these things and that they are good things to invest in. And every now and again, we have a win and something can happen. And at the moment, we're enjoying very much some influence that we're having uh, working with the mayor at Morden Bay Regional Council. And the mayor and I were able to stand up on a stage a bit over a year ago at the Asia Pacific City Summit. And the mayor of Morden Bay Regional Council was able to say the words Morden Bay City Council for the first time publicly. And that is real courage. That's real leadership. So we're on a journey now to shape a vision for what will become a new city over the coming few years. Well, certainly in terms of the pragmatics of the armature of government, they will be practically a city, hopefully by this time next year. And in having that conversation, we're able to have a conversation about a vision for the kind of city that they might become. And this notion of a polycentric city is the vision that we're prosecuting, which is a really exciting idea of moving away from the 20th century idea of a mono, monocentric city, which Brisbane is, into a more contemporary idea of a polycentric city, a city made of many centres, which has a lot of benefits um, in terms of its stepping up to its responsibilities to have a city that's made around employment choice and access to productivity and those sorts of things, that's all very important. So I think the the opportunities are always the case that, you know, I think that Brisbane is a young city. I think that it has a lot of potential. And if we have this notion that we are building a new city, we get to build a good one. And that's what I remain excited about. I think that's the case, not just for Brisbane, but for many cities around Australia. So when people imagine the idealised city, I mean, a lot of the criticisms about that will be that it's a utopian idea and utopias are doomed always to fail. But I do think that there are qualities about cities that we love and those qualities are finding a home in our city and, and are being sustained. So, you know, if we go back to only a couple of generations, um, you know, Brisbane really was a city that didn't have an urban culture, which, you know, has really emerged in cities in Australia over the last 20 years. But I think Brisbane's blessed with a, a, um, a particularly benign climate. We're able to do things with buildings and in the way that we live here in, in uh, southeast Queensland that's just simply not possible for many parts of the world. And that allows us to actually really provide some advocacy for engaging in our public realm and provide buildings that can open up and do things, um, daring things that buildings in many parts of the world practically can't do. And that sets us up for a notion of a kind of, you know, a burgeoning civitas, a, a sort of an idea about being public with the way that we live and the public with the way that our buildings work. And I think there's some real things there. That in the city of my dreams, I, I see that notion of a sort of constant and pervasive investment in all of our things from our homes in our streets all the way through to our grand civic buildings that there's a kind of publicness about the way that we live you know I, I have said before in previously looking at examples in our suburbs and in I'm very lucky that to live in a little suburb of Shorncliffe out on the bay north of Brisbane and some very finely made streets in the late 19th century and many people there will plant some of their garden on the other side of the fence, the side of the fence that's between the fence and the curb, which is actually the footpath. City council could perfectly come along and say, you must remove all of that. Of course, city council's smart enough not to do that because it's all really beautiful and everybody kind of loves it. And that's for many people, that's their first foray into the public realm. And this notion of civitas is about recognising that you're living partly for yourself, but you're also living very much with others. And we need to provide constant investment in the way that we live with others. 
And so the city of my dreams is a city where the spaces between buildings are considered every bit as important as the buildings themselves. And that there's a dialogue that we're investing in through design about the way that we live and the way that we can live with others publicly in the shape of our city. And that those things also go to things like, if we're looking at the spaces between buildings, let's look at the things that allow them to be high quality spaces. And if we were to think about that carefully, we might like to shape our city to step back from a city that's been designed and built around servicing cars to a city that's been designed and built in the service of people. You know, I find it kind of ironic that there's a, you know, a Department of Transport that used to be up at Spring Hill and, you know, with its $3.5 billion budget every year and plenty of people sitting pouring over maps with this you know, you could almost imagine the sort of 20-storey black crayon being dragged through the communities with people fleeing in front of it. And whilst that's a kind of a romantic and slightly ridiculous idea, in practice, that, that's actually what happens. And and I've seen firsthand, you know, the, the forces at work and the enormous impact of the infrastructure that we spend, invest in enormously, that completely attrites our city, that retards and makes our city impoverished in terms of the benefits that we could otherwise provide by thinking about those things more carefully. So the city of my dreams is a city that is concerned with people, that is responsibly reconciling itself in terms of the way that our city sits on country and its relationship to our natural systems. So, you know, the city of my dreams is drawing all of its energy from the sun is a zero carbon footprint, producing buildings that are overtly public and engaging and inviting, that we're leaving no one behind, that housing is proudly built by all of us to make a home for everyone. A city that is founded on a burgeoning civitas that reflects our society where we can open our arms and welcome the rest of the world to get on the aeroplanes and come and visit us and feel churlish about the sort of city that we've built for ourselves and take that knowledge back home and begin to infect the rest of the world with exactly the same kind of emphasis. You talk about your community of Shorncliffe and this idea of your neighbours planting on the other side of their fence, which is arguably not their land. Do you think there is a confusion at times of ownership in that people don't feel that the spaces between buildings belong to them when in fact those spaces belong to us all? and that we haven't vested interest in these in-between spaces in the city as a result of this? Absolutely. I mean, I find this kind of slightly insane, right? So, I'm, you know, I've sat in the meetings and had the councillor, you know, puff their chest out and poke the plan in front of them and remind me with uh, a fair bit of energy, I have to say, that's mine. That is my thing. And if you want to do that, you're in my space. And, and I must admit, leaving that meeting, and it's occurred on a few occasions, actually, and they're not always councillors, sometimes they're ministers. It's a complete nonsense that government works for anyone else but us. I mean, it, the government is our creation. It is society's mechanism to give us the city of our dreams. And the city, the streets are yours. Go and do things in them. I mean, there's some fantastic, I have some colleagues um, through the Urban Design Alliance, which I was involved in very heavily earlier in my career, and which is a terrific institution. And I would recommend very much any young urban designer going and getting involved in the Urban Design Alliance. There's a great cohort of like-minded city makers there. And some of the movements that are happening around cities are about reclaiming the streets for people. And so we know what Parking Day is, which is a terrific initiative around, you know, occupying spaces that are otherwise occupied by cars and turning them into delightful follies that we get to enjoy for a little while. And that has led, strangely, to some things that the Brisbane City Council is actually, to their great credit, investing in, which is, for instance, removing the traffic from Albert Street in the city's heart and repeopling that space. And that grew out of this idea of parking day, which grew out of, out of this idea of temporary occupation of the streets. And there was a series of council-led initiatives to provide festivals that reclaim the streets for events at moments in the city's history, which is terrific, right? So I, I think that the city is really ours to you know, create and to pursue our dreams through. It's an artifact of the thing that we make by coming together and we have to be conscious that it's a constant dialogue in terms of positioning our values and what we would like to see in the context of the values of others. 
So it is really the point at which, at least in most modern histories, um, it's the point where our societies come together and express themselves, is, has been in the city. More recently, it seems to be in social media, which I find kind of completely disparaging. But I think the energy that we can leverage by coming together more can be expressed in the public spaces that we make in our cities. And and we should have a really strong dialogue and a sense of ownership and, and access to to a dialogue about the way that we shape our city because it's the city belongs to us. It's ours. It's interesting that you say that the government is intended to be a mechanism to assist us in creating the city of our dreams, when more often than not, it is the very thing that stands in the way of us realising it. But I'm very hopeful that that will change. I like to always say, Bridie, that we're only one election away from a great city at any one time in history. But nonetheless, um, I continue to be slightly disappointed about design and the ability for design matters to make themselves onto the political agenda. And in a way, we kind of get, we sort of get the city we deserve in a way. But it would be a great shame if we were able to somehow take the straw poll instantly of everybody in the city at one moment and say, and understand the unrequited aspirations for things that they deeply loved, that they wished they could have in their city and their communities where they live. And if we were able to understand that in some stroke of genius sort of uniformly through everybody, I think that we would find there's a deep underlying desire for for great things to happen that simply don't because there's no way, there's no mechanism for that desire to find its way onto the political agenda. We're very sure about the things we don't like and when we don't like something, we can get very cranky and very angry and very vocal. But it's it seems to be a lot less energy put towards the things that we do like. And I, I think there's a bit of work to do for the design community to continue to create the visions for the possibilities and get them out into the public realm and get people in to uh, swing in behind them. I think some experiments that would be great to do, and I haven't quite worked up the courage to do one of these myself, but they're not without precedent elsewhere in the world, is large-scale, crowd-funded public realm improvements. You know, which which crowdfunding and crowdsourcing is um, is a powerful mechanism for change, and it would be useful to sort of see, especially our design institutes supporting more the investigations about the design potentials of our cities, and connecting that to um, to uh, crowdsourcing mechanisms to demonstrate to our politicians that there is an advocacy for good things to happen at any one time in the city's history. You say there are other examples of where this has happened internationally. What is an example? Um, I think the um, look, if I'm specific, I'm going to get it wrong. So forgive me if I have this wrong. I think that Bjark Inglis's um, design competition winning entry for the recycling factory, and it escapes me the specifics about this project, other than there was a measure made through social media to understand the advocacy for this particular project. And this is a, you know, a recycling factory that blows a kind of beautiful smoke ring every now and again, which represents however many gigalitres of carbon are being pumped into the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. And it has a kind of tumbling parkland over the top of it that turns into a ski field in the winter. You know, it's a kind of an amazing building and it's witty and it has meaning and metaphor that's profound. But most importantly, it was the strategy of that building was kind of logical enough for everybody to kind of get it and get on board with it. And it did receive a lot of advocacy and support through uh, social media, which provided the platform for the politicians to say yes to a building which was obviously significantly exceeded its budget. So, you know, a good thing could happen because the people willed it so. I'm not sure that this project was crowdfunded, but it was definitely opened up to the public to come up with a solution for how to restore it to its former glory. And that is a Notre Dame. And I did think that was an interesting, another interesting way to approach it. That's a really good example where the world is so appalled at the loss of something great. You know, I could imagine if the uh, Sydney Opera House caught fire and burnt to the ground, the whole world would swing in to kind of find a way to rebuild it. So we, we do love our things. And we do love the great artefacts of our cities, the, the moments in where you know humanity's been able to make something so profound and beautiful that it um, touches us all through the generations, which I think is terrific. So we need to continue to kind of work on making space for those special things to happen, both physically in our city, but also just in terms of the machinery of our society. We need to make room for special things to happen and recognise and realise their value. And unfortunately, I just think we have come through a period where we have had uh, premiers of past who were able to stand up and refer to design as gold plating 
and significantly work to diminish the state's capacity to advocate for good design by unpacking some of the very important architectures that were within the, the architecture of government who were in support of good design outcomes. And I, I really do think that in Queensland, we're still recovering from that moment, both at local council and at the state level. And that will be a healing process that we need to continue to apply the healing balm to make sure that we come back from that and get back to the moment in history where design was very important and our government saw a lot of value in investing and supporting it. Coming back to what you were saying about us generally as a community, we're very good at an afterthought, aren't we, about raising the alarm when we're not happy about a built outcome, but we're not very good at us at forethought. So we're good at afterthought, but not forethought. We're not good at thinking about how we can empower our government to make better design decisions for our city, for our new city. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's really, really simple, you know, in a way. Just take our city plan, for example, you know, the previous iterations of the city plan. I'll talk about a parallel example. So we have now in our suburbs, laneway bars. And Sandgate, there is a bar called the Cardigan Bar, which is every bit as cool as any laneway bar you will find in Melbourne. In Sandgate? Okay. I've not heard of that. In Sandgate, yeah. It's a three-metre-wide laneway next to Hoffy Cycles, which has been there for generations. And the Cardigan Bar occupies this laneway. And the reason that it exists is not because we sat down and thought, how do we create a little bit of cool in our suburbs and deliver a bit of urbanity as an urban strategy around our placemaking master plans for identified suburban centres. No, it wasn't a result of that. It was a result of a change to the liquor licensing laws, which came at a point where prior to that, in order to serve alcohol in a bar, you would have had to have a fully functioning commercial kitchen and be offering a menu and meals. Or the hotelier's licence where, strangely, you had to have at least one permanent residence living on premises. You know, there's just this kind of nonsense. And the loosening up of that law allowed laneway bars and this kind of generation over the last 10 years of cool things to happen in our suburbs. Many of suburbs around Brisbane now have little uh, drinking venues, some of them attached to gyms, some of them attached to laundromats, you know, some of them popping up in old garages. There's a terrific one at Milton, you know, like, and they're popping up all over the place and doing fantastic things and giving us this, this kind of sweet experience, this sweet urban experience in an otherwise sort of suburban setting where it would be a desert for all of those things. So that's an example about how a little practical piece of machinery of our governance and advocacy and you know, our societal controls can release a potential for a flower to bloom. Now, if we're looking at the uh, local government, you know, if we're looking at the city plan, for example, you know, we let go of controlling things and we let go of a system that encouraged design innovation. So historically, you know, we had controls in our city plan around things like plot ratio, you know, so if you had a site that was a, you know, 10,000 metres and you're allowed to do a, a development control might be, you know, two as to one as a plot ratio and you're allowed to build this much stuff. And there was a, a design incentive mechanism, which meant that these are the things that the city might be interested in. We're interested in solar responsiveness, passive design. We want to see an activated ground plane. We want to see a, you know, high quality architecture with a specific things. We want to see an expression at the rooftop, you know, we can we can put design controls in to our city plan and ask for those things to happen and design values things that we care about you know are your materials locally sourced what's your green star rating all of those things and we can reward the development community for coming and providing those things in their propositions for their projects by giving them a little bit of something and what we used to give them was a little bit more gfa a little bit more gross floor area in exchange for delivering a higher design outcome so there was an incentive process that was built into city plan historically and we've sort of moved completely away from that so that now we we have what is allegedly form-based codes where we say here's their setbacks and here's the height and you can stick as much stuff in there as you think you can get away with and that means that we have very mean floor to floors we don't have any roofs on our buildings and we build the buildings up to those setbacks you can cast your eye along south brisbane and you can see a generation of of buildings where we can see architects genuinely struggling to deliver high quality buildings because of the planning constraints around them that control the outcome so we do need to engage in the way that we put our pieces of governance together to make sure that they're set up to encourage design excellence. 
And presently in the city plan, they simply those um, mechanisms have just fallen by the wayside, and we need to kind of begin to have a conversation about reinstating some of those in the way that we use the planning instruments to get good design outcomes. Archipelago distinguishes its work through the value brought from a deep understanding of place, context, and the urban condition. Why is this design ethos so important to Archipelago? Oh, it's born out of our value system as architects. So we aren't architects that are interested in design objects. And look, I think there's lots of kind of ways that you can come to a building. The way that we come to buildings and places is by considering them in the, in their context, in the, in the way that they sit in the city. And the reason that you do that is that when we're creating a design, we can reach outside of our site and we can annex value from the context that we sit within and demonstrate to our client that we can bring that value into the design proposition and make the design better. And that might be something simple about orienting to a particular view or, I mean, we're doing a project at the moment up at a burgeoning new piece of uh, vanity that's happening up um, up at the Sunshine Coast. And look, this is one of the problems with these large new places is that they look very much like a continuation of of sprawl, that there's not a very distinctive, you know, that every, everything's a, a one to two storey brick veneer and with uh, roofs so closely packed together, the sheepdog could scamper across the top of them. And in that context, in this particular master planned community that we're doing, we introduced a hill. And the reason to introduce a hill is to actually create a kind of differentiation that can create an urban condition that can annex some value. So at the top of this hill is an infinity lawn that stretches to the southwest and sets up this quite dramatic view to the Glasshouse Mountains. And that view and that moment of being at that elevated hilltop looking to the southwest over all of the view of the um, sea of roofs removed and to be intimately connected to this old country, to the you know these these artifacts of geology that are layered with thirty thousand years of mythology and dreaming, to connect people to that, and incidentally connect in a very handy way to a, an afternoon sunset and become a quite a dramatic kind of urban place. We're able to do that by understanding we can set up a design strategy that can reach beyond our site to the distant horizon and set up a value proposition. We can only do that if we're considering the context of the way that that design sits. And that proposition always can occur. If you're looking at a site plan uh, for a particular project and the rendering finishes at the property boundary, something's wrong because the site condition for that project, you know, be it a, a landscape place or a, you know, an urban realm or a building or a master plan or whatever it is, it sits within a context, be that a natural context or a built context. And when we are able to kind of recognise the opportunities of being able to reach outside of our own concerns and be responsive to the place that we sit in the city, in an exchange with the city, be able to pull value from the city into our design proposition to make our designs better... It's such a rewarding thing. And through the work that we've done over the years, I'm able to walk into pieces of cities and look down streets that we've created and and see them terminating on the distant hilltop and take great pleasure from that experience. So whether it's a master plan or whether it's a building or whether it's a landscape, constantly considering them in their urban condition is, is a very rewarding position to take from a design point of view. Do you think that the only way that we can realise the true purity of place and context is if we advocate for local design, or do you think there is an opportunity and room for international practice to realise the importance of place and context in Australia? Well, I'd like to have the and conversation about that. I think it's terrific to invite the global community of architects into your city and partner with local firms to do great things. I mean... You know, the Opera House, one of the great nation's icons, and there I'm using using that word again. Uh, Well, it was certainly a collaboration between ultimately a local firm and an international architect. I think there's fantastic merit in partnering always. I mean, Archipelago, by its very definition, seeks to be a continental mass made of islands. 
And so we collaborate, we're rabid collaborators. We, we just collaborate all over the place. And we really take great joy from that. You know, it's really exciting working with other people and other ways of thinking and other approaches to projects. Um, you know, for instance, when we did the Parklands project down on the Gold Coast, we worked with my good friend, Andrew Guttridge at Arkfield and, and Steve Ashton from ARM. And I mean, ARM, I mean, they are a fantastic, they're quite an incredible firm and they will take you out of your comfort zone to a place that you otherwise would not have gone. And whilst I can comfortably say that not all of their architecture is my bag, I respect very much the way that that firm's processes, how they approach design and the kinds of things that they're able to make. So I would hate to think that the only way to build the city of our dreams is by only using local architects and I'd never really advocate for that. But what I do think is important is that when we're introducing new ideas to the city, it's done in partnership with the local understanding. And that would only be, for instance, if we were to go to another city somewhere else in the world, and we have done on, on occasion, and provide contributions around design. We're very much uh, looking for you know a kind of a local partnering to make that work meaningful and appropriate and pertinent. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, we can see buildings that look like they've been landed from outer space into a kind of urban condition and struggle to find a kind of an appropriateness. And I know there's some schools of thought that take great delight in that, but I think it's a kind of, there's a sort of arrogance attached to that, which is a bit self-serving and ultimately not great for the city. I, I think that the pieces of architecture that I really like are um, pieces of architecture that take great comfort in the way that they sit within their city and draw very much on their city's context and, and vernacular to provide a good outcome and a great building. Well, thank you, Peter, for taking the time to talk with me today and for contributing to Imagine Group's Hearing Architecture podcast to talk about the projects that never got built, those we hoped would get built, and those we hoped never to see realised. And thank you for all that you do to contribute to building Brisbane as a new city and the city of our dreams. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. It's wonderful. And I'd uh, encourage everyone very much to continue to uh, fight the good fight and deploy their uh, passions and interests for the betterment of the city, it's a, it's a noble thing to do and I'm looking forward to the coming generations of ideas that will come to this city over the next 10 years and the next 10 years are very exciting, so we're looking forward to it. This is Brad O'Toole and this is Hearing Architecture. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Peter Edwards from Archipelago Architects. Thank you so much for being involved in the podcast and for all the work you're doing for our cities and suburbs across Queensland. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Bradio O'Toole, Myron Montero, Genevieve Vu and Rohanna Fullerton. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.